0: Hey everybody, welcome to the People's World podcast. My name is Patrick Foot. Uh, today on the show, special treat—something we haven't done before—we have an interview uh, between our head editor here at the People's World, Terry Albano, and
1: Sean Sweeney, who is the coordinator of a global network called Trade Unions for Energy Democracy
0: and director of
1: International Program on Labor, Climate, and Environment at the Murphy Institute, City University of New York.
0: He and Terry talk about contradictions faced by and in the labor movement in the face of climate change, as well as hopes and strategies for the conference unfolding in Paris as I speak. And not to toot the PW's own horn, but I think this is probably one of the deeper conversations that you'll be able to find uh, surrounding COP21 regarding the role of labor in the big picture climate change issue. And so without further ado, and yes, pun intended... Here's the interview.
2: Okay, thanks, Sean. So could you just explain for our listeners exactly what this means, Trade Unions for Energy Democracy?
1: Um, the project was, is three years old. It came out of a frustration on the part of some unions around the world, Um, a frustration with the UN climate negotiations in particular, but also the expansion of extreme energy and fossil fuel use around the world. And by extreme energy, we're talking about fracking, deep water drilling, mountaintop removal, tar sands, um, what is nicely called unconventional fuels. And we looked at what was happening with emissions, pollution, extraction, and it all looked like it was going in the wrong direction. The data um, from all the various um, data and policy organizations confirmed that we were not seeing a green transition in energy, but we were seeing more fossil fuels coming into the system ever dirtier and more repressive in terms of their implications for workers and communities uh, pretty much everywhere in the world so the idea for unions for energy democracy was to in the face of these trends um, to reach a conclusion a very important one i believe that only a struggle over the energy system itself to reclaim it to the public, to democratize it, to restructure it, was going to get us anywhere near where we needed to go on a planetary level. We understood that this is a long-term struggle. It's not something that's going to be a short one-year campaign and we'll have everything all done and dusted. Um, But we're trying to reinsert into the global trade union debate and into politics the importance of social ownership and democratic control, particularly of energy, uh, but of also other key sectors. So
2: that's what we're trying to do. Wow, that's a big job. Oh, yeah. Um, have you seen any, or can you give us any examples of kind of what uh, energy democracy may look like in either in the U.S. or uh, around the world?
1: Well, um I think it's expressing itself in four different trends. The first is the proliferation of energy cooperatives around the world, mostly around solar. These aren't very significant at this stage, but in countries like Germany, they've established quite a space in the energy system. And also in Denmark, the wind industry was built around cooperatives. So that was quite significant. We see it in some countries in the global south as well, particularly around solar. It's not a massive trend, but it is a trend um, because solar, photovoltaic, um, solar panels essentially are much cheaper now, and they're the only way a lot of poor people are ever gonna get electrical power. The second trend is what is known as remunicipalization. This is where cities reclaim um, a part of the energy system, particularly the grid, in order to deploy more renewable energy. And we're seeing that, again, mostly in Germany, but one or two cities in the United States, Boulder, Colorado is one, and we're going to see more of it, I think, as cities um, push back against the big energy companies. The third is reform of the utilities. We're seeing that also in one or two places. This is where utilities are essentially instructed to uh, change their business model and or um, to uh, take on more renewable power. A lot of utilities have some kind of formal oversight a structure or that's supposed to keep an eye on what they're doing the us is a good example of that and there is an effort to reform utilities again it's not a massive effort but it is happening here and there and the last one is from the historical example of the rural electrification administration during the new deal and we maintain that um that level of scale and intervention and ambition is important if we're going to really Um, decarbonize and democratize energy. So that's the kind of the Roosevelt model, public works essentially. So it's a work in progress. Um, We also know that it could happen at the level of the state. Um, We see in Greece, Syriza was elected on public ownership of energy. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn in Britain has come out for breaking up the big private cartel of energy companies and re-nationalizing essentially so and uh, podemos in spain and the spanish left have a position on energy democracy unions in latin america talk about democratization of energy but we're really at a level of uh in most cases trying to change language and and raise ambition with a few concrete examples on the ground to refer to but still a long way to go
2: Right. Um, you mentioned the remunicipalization, but there are some cities in the U.S., I seem to remember, Los Angeles maybe being one, or Cleveland.
1: Yeah. Los Angeles was, was uh, basically a kilowatt socialism at the turn of the last century. They, I think it's still the case. It's a public utility. Um, I'm not too knowledgeable about it, but I know it was a, a good example of uh, – Well, I think it was the Socialist Party in the first two decades of the last century made it a priority. And this is documented in the Unions for Energy Democracy publication called Power to the People Towards Democratic Control of Electricity Generation, which is a fairly new document that's on our website.
2: Um, Well, a couple of things came to mind um you mentioned renationalization too but i also noticed you tend to not talk about nationalization as a part of the energy democracy is there reasons for that or uh so that's one and then the other question that came to mind too as a follow up is uh um has the energy democracy programs have has it been Talked about or presented with the Sanders campaign or injected somehow in the 2016 presidential elections? Uh, well,
1: like the the second one is easy easy to answer. The answer is no. Not because um, we wouldn't like to. We just haven't got the ear of the Sanders team at the moment. Um, any advice in that without regard would be most welcome. Uh, and I think this is something that uh, Bernie might take seriously. Um, certainly got uh, an affinity towards those kind of approaches, I believe. Um, but the nationalization question, it's not that we con- consciously avoid the term, um, but we do make t- say that this issue of energy democracy and democratic control can't be reduced to public versus private. We have a lot of publicly owned energy around the world. Um, uh, most oil is publicly owned the problem is most of those public or semi-public entities act like um, profit-seeking capitalist multinationals so they invest on they invest globally whether it be um, you know the french or the norwegian or the chinese or the indian um, american for that matter they invest globally they make profits they invest they're basically publicly traded and so the ownership is really um, formal. What's most important is the behavior. And if the idea is to sell more energy to make profit and then reward yourself with those profits at a very high level, then that's not the kind of, um, uh, that's not what we mean by energy democracy. So the public side of it, or the nationalization side of it, needs to be qualified um, in every instance.
2: Thanks. Thanks for that uh, explanation. Um, let's turn a little bit to Paris. Um, yes. uh, TUED is going to be there, along with a number of other unions, both from the U.S. and around the world. Uh, what's the plan for Paris? And also, can you give a little uh, summary about so far, your attitudes are TUED's attitude towards the uh, what, what looks like shaping up to be a historic agreement.
1: Um, yes, well, first of all, what's going to happen in Paris from a trade union perspective? The International Trade Union Confederation, ITUC, will lead the delegation. It'll be mostly focused on the formal talks, its primary goals Um, are threefold. One, I'm doing this from memory now, one is to raise the level of ambition and to put the world on a pathway to two degrees Celsius maximum Um, and to emphasize the job creation potential of that scenario. That's the first goal. The second goal is to have fair climate financing this has been discussed now for a dozen years or more that the poorer countries are most hit most vulnerable um need to be helped both with to use climate speak mitigation which is the reduction of emissions and adaptation which is to deal with the consequences of climate change which are inevitable and so that's the second demand and the third demand of the ituc is for just transition for workers to be included as a specific reference in the final agreement so it's very much an inside game um, and it focuses largely on lobbying negotiators and government ministers outside of the talks um, there will be this is where it gets a little bit more complicated there are planned discussions among the unions, between unions and other social movements. there's probably going to be um, a, um, a very intense period of days of discussions and debates. Sort of a World Social Forum kind of atmosphere in some cases. Um, lots of debate and discussion, people meeting, networking, making plans. It's a great organizing opportunity if you can stay organized yourself to get you know, to get there and really understand what's going on, and that can be difficult um, to stay on top of it all. But the hope is for Unions for Energy Democracy, we're focusing on to, aside from the Jeremy Corbyn, Naomi Klein discussion, um, which is probably gonna be the largest ever trade union event at a UN climate meeting. Um, it's already turning into being a big event for obvious reasons. Um, But the other two areas we're focusing on is to try to get unions to support uh, a trade union call for a global moratorium on fracking for shale gas and shale oil, and that has already got quite a lot of union support. And the second is to maintain or insist that the climate targets that are being proposed are A, inadequate, and B, If they were adequate, the only way they could be reached is if the public sphere is expanded dramatically, particularly in energy, but also transportation, food and agriculture and other systems. We can't decarbonize the system without massive expansion of public control. And that's the main message. And as you know, Teresa, over the last 30 years, unions have gone largely shy of any mention of public ownership. They don't mind defending public services um, but they are reluctant to talk about reclaiming to the public space or the public sphere wh- anything that's been privatized. That's began to, begun to begin to change as um, as the failures of privatization have made themselves clear, um, in particularly in water, electricity, and other key industries. So we feel that we, the trade union movement needs a bolder narrative in order to, if we support the science, we must take the solutions more seriously, and that means a bolder agenda. So that's what we're going to try to get into the debates uh, in the unions uh, in Paris.
2: Great. Well, that is certainly bolder. Uh, uh, yes. And how do you... For the U.S., for example, uh, kind of balance the idea of the science behind the climate change and what's needed to stop the warming, and then the political situation in the United States, which we still have a Congress full of climate deniers funded by Exxon Mobil and et cetera. So, how do you see? Um, and you know, the unions are across the board whether they are involved in the energy sector or in the public sector or wherever are also dealing with these um you know issues not of just not of climate change necessarily but these political issues of even survival uh for unions so you know how, how give us an example of how these discussions can unfold that's one and two um
1: I was hoping you were going to stop there. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll stop there. I'm only kidding. If you want
0: to give me the second
2: <laughs> The second is the basic thing uh, you mentioned about job transitions and community transitions. And I think that's a big question for us in the United States when you look at, you know, the coal miners, you look at the utility workers, you look at uh, uh, even the refinery workers, et cetera, everybody involved in the fossil fuel, plus then this, you know, hope, of job creation through fracking or even this XL pipeline, which, you know, thank goodness the president had stopped. So, anyway, so that the job transition is the second question.
1: Yeah, let's start with the political realities of the US. I mean, you know, it's tempting to look at the situation and say, on the one side, you have, you know, climate deniers and Congress and uh, the whole stack of Republicans and some Democrats who think all of this is a big globalist hoax um, and that's a problem but you know I in my view Teresa the biggest problem is giving um, Obama administration a get out of jail free card on this when Obama says the US is reducing its emissions that it's reducing its emissions more than any other country it's simply not true and um, for U.S. unions to go to Paris and think that the U.S. is playing a positive role in the talks, I think it needs to be um, needs to be. Let's. I'm looking for a polite word. Looked at very carefully in terms of the facts, and so the answer to the deniers and the uh, the right wing in the U.S. Congress is not Obama's climate policy, or even the Clean Power Plan. Uh, The answer is a truthful assessment of US emissions trends and what's really happening. And particularly, and I don't wanna get too technical, uh, but particularly uh, an accurate accounting of fugitive methane from shale gas drilling from fracking, which is not accurately reported. And if it were accurately reported, reported, US emissions wouldn't look very good at all. So the US still has a lot to do obama administration played um in my view a negative role in the 2009 copenhagen climate talks when they largely um demolished in a few hours the um support for a legally binding agreement based on science and replaced it with the copenhagen accord which was a pledge and review of voluntary commitments and that's where we're at now The commitments that are on the table in paris are um way uh, very inadequate when we look at what the scientific uh data are telling us needs to be done it will probably the agreement will probably be given two thumbs up by everybody for being ambitious and bold and historic but at the end of the day we're locked in to three degrees or so of Uh, Celsius of global warming, which is almost five degrees Fahrenheit, and that is not good. And also, it's based on aspirational targets and projections. It's not based on a legally binding commitment. So I think that we should be pushing hard for ambition. Um, We're not going to get too much out of the State Department, frankly. If Bernie was President of the United States, I think it would be a different conversation but we're not going to get too much out of this. The US will present itself as um, a positive force in these talks. So I think for US unions is not to be um, basically misled by um, what the State Department's going to be saying there. Now, just transition, if I may. Um, yes, it's true that there's some jobs in fossil fuels, um, but. What is happening is there's basically a collapse of coal consumption in the US and a push towards coal exports. This is not anything to do with environmental policy. It's more to do with cheap, cheap shale gas fracking. And that has undercut both coal deployment, coal use, and also renewable energy. So energy economics is pushing workers out of the industry. Um, and in coal, for example, more than half of the U.S. coal mine today is in Montana and Wyoming in the Powder River Basin, which is virtually non-union. The union dimension of coal now is not in coal mining. It's in coal transportation, moving coal around on trains where there are tens of thousands of jobs um, performing that work. I believe something like 40%, maybe more of tonnage moved on trains in the US is coal. So this is a more serious problem than coal mining. The utility workers are losing members because coal fired power plants are closing up. And that's largely again, due to to fracking. And then you've got the laborers and some of the state Federation AFL CIO supporting fracking because of very, very few number of jobs. Um, But as you know from the culture of the trade unions in the U.S., it only takes a few locals who really want a project to go forward um, to come down on one side. And a lot of other unions don't want to pick a fight, which is understandable. And they run away from the issue. We saw this with Keystone XL, with the important exception of the unions who opposed it, even though they knew they were going to get severely criticized by uh, those unions who supported the project. So this is an important change I believe in, in the culture. It says we're all um, energy unions to some extent, we're all living on this planet and we have as much right to oppose a project as you have to support it if it affects the health of workers, communities and future generations. And I think the nurses unions in the US Embody that they advocate for their patients. They say we see the effects of fossil fuels both domestically and internationally, and we opposed the pipeline for those reasons. But it did cause a split in the trade union movement on that question. And I think the the rise of um, what is called Saudi America—you know—the idea that the U.S. now is an, is going to be and is an exporter of coal, oil and gas um, and will be a major player in the world economy um, in providing those fuels. That is a scenario that makes some unions quite excited and it makes another set of unions quite disturbed. So I think we're going to see more battles. I hope we can resolve it as a movement. And certainly, uh, Unions for Energy Democracy has been trying to play that role. Um, by saying all of these issues of transition could be resolved if we had control over the industry. We, none, Nothing is going to happen in two years or five years. It's a 15, 20 year proposition at minimum. And we can plan our way out of this. We can have a planned and orderly transition, a truly just transition, if we have control over the sector. And that means re regulating, renationalizing, restructuring that sector. And I know it sounds like Herculean task, but um, I don't see any other way around it. We have to fight around this question. Well, that's a bit of a long answer, but I hope you got something.
2: Well, that's for sure. I have a couple of follow-ups on that. Um, It's going to be a long, long, hard fight. Uh, I'm a little surprised about uh, your uh, analysis of the Obama administration and the initiatives around Climate change. Not know so much about the 2009 Copenhagen conference, but the you know the coal emission uh, plants and putting uh, greenhouse gases under the uh, EPA and mm-hmm. and so it's because they've caught so much backlash from the right wing, etc. So they must be moving in a direction that's maybe not obviously not far enough mm-hmm. that we need to really make a difference in this climate catastrophe, but given the political realities in the United States, is pushing forward. I mean, this is a Congress who wouldn't even uh, undo the oil subsidies, even though the Obama Administration and, and there were Democrats, of course, from oil states, say Louisiana, et cetera, that were against such things. But in general, I think people think, yeah, why are we supporting these uh, the, the big oil with these tax subsidies? so i'm yeah. i'm a little surprised about that um assessment um in in somewhat related um i see that fossil fuel industry big oil big coal in in particular um probably the most reactionary in terms of our uh, sup- the support that they give <laughs> in the political realm you know, the yep. ExxonMobil thing about supporting, the, you know, all sorts of foundations that, or whatever, this climate denying. Uh, also, the Koch brothers involved in, you know, fossil fuel, and if there isn't some kind of poster boys for uh, reaction in the United States, it's the Koch brothers. So um, isn't there somehow a, a broad coalition that can be developed that would include, you know, say, Obama administration or whoever uh, possible Democratic nominee um, going forward even if there's disagreement about how far
1: well it's um, it's let me go back to the assessment um, I think there's two ways of looking at it there's looking at it in the context of US politics in which you could say I would give Obama a B or a B minus in terms of what has been done on climate change. He has empowered the EPA, stood by the EPA. But if you look carefully at what is being proposed under the Obama's um, plan, and bear in mind it's a projection, it's really not much different from business as usual. The emissions from power generation will go down. Based on the uneconomic mm. um, nature of coal vis-à-vis gas, that's the reality. That's most of the commitment put on the table by Obama. There's not much in energy conservation, and there's not much in mm. renewable scaling up renewable power. So um, then, then you've got to look at, as I said, the the fact that the EPA um, under And they're fully conscious of this. The EPA undermeasures methane. And if you look at methane, it is 40 times, it is 67 times more potent than carbon dioxide. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's own figures, which were updated two years ago. The EPA still uses 1995 criteria, which puts methane at half as potent. So it bases its emissions Um, on undervaluing methane. Methane Mm. does its damage over a 20 year period. So there's a whole debate to be had um, by the environmental groups in particular, who have changed their position on fracking from being somewhat supportive because gas burns cleaner than coal to now quite considerably more critical. So I think, yes, in the context of politics, Obama's doing okay, although we have to be honest about the realities. And in the context of global emissions, the U.S.'s per capita emissions is higher than anybody else, with the exception of Canada, Mm. and that's not going to change fundamentally in the next 15 years. Um, And there's no emphasis on public renewable power, and there's no emphasis on energy conservation, Uh, very limited. So I think this, is, um, this should be part of the debate and not say, well, you're doing your best. Look at all those terrible Republicans. Um, I think the best way of taking on the, rep- the fossil fuel industry and the Republican right is to tell the truth and engage with the climate movement. And I think the U.S. trade union movement should be doing that more. And I think it's making some good steps in that direction. So I sort of mixed in the two questions there, but um, that's, uh, that's, I see, important to point those things out in the context of U.S. politics. In terms of a co- political coalition to express that, again, the biggest problem, I think, is on the one side, you've got public semi-regulated utilities that see renewable energy companies as the enemy. Mm. And that's because they're startup companies. They're mostly non-union. They use imported materials. And so unions tend to go along with that perspective as well. And so unless we, if we had basically a New Deal type program in energy, particularly renewable power, then we could scale up renewables, do it domestically, do it union, and really have some serious, um, serious job creation along with it. I think that's a altogether better scenario for the unions in the sector. We're trying to keep a few jobs, and they're losing that battle, unfortunately.
2: I visited a uh, wind turbine plant in western Pennsylvania in 09, which was organized by U.S. Uh, United Steelworkers. And one of the things, it was a Spanish-owned company, and one of the things that the um, PR person who took us around, Uh, said was that these turbines have I don't know how many hundreds of different parts inside that that's right none of them are made in the United States these machined parts and even we don't even really have the machine equipment to make such parts in the United States Um, and that prevents a whole horizontal problem for this, you know, Spanish company and other companies that might want to invest in renewables in the United States, et cetera. So I can see um, this was one small wind farm, one small wind turbine plant in western Pennsylvania.
1: Was it the Gamesa
2: plant? Exactly, exactly.
1: that was the poster child of the the Blue-Green Alliance. Um, But unfortunately... I believe it closed, or it's now become uh, a hub for imported components. <laughs> I haven't followed it closely, but um, that's what I've been hearing about it.
2: Well, that uh, brings me to our last part here. Um, are there other countries that we could look to that are doing some of the right things on um, on both renewables? reducing emissions, uh, again, maybe some of the energy democracy issues, but mainly about uh, you know, getting off fossil fuels and getting onto renewables. Um, and just a little bit of an aside is that you know, Bernie Sanders talked about looking to Denmark and other places you know, and um, kind of caught, caught some backlash on that. Um, but shouldn't we be looking? at other countries and what's being done right in terms of that?
1: Yeah, I wish I had a long list of countries that we could point to. I would say, you know, Cuba's done a good job. Its emissions footprint is virtually nothing. Yeah. Um, But its approach is very interesting. It's, um, you know, it basically had a program where it gave away 90 million, um, you know, compact fluorescent bulbs in order to advance energy conservation. Um, not for climate reasons necessarily, but because they're better, they're cheaper, they consume less electricity. And rather than wait for the consumer to make a decision um, on this, made it a kind of a government program and transitioned out incandescence and moved in with compact fluorescence. That's the kind of bold policies I think we need. Um, in terms of renewable energy deployment I think, um, again, there's some like Denmark and Germany do have a strong public approach, Um, although it's a bit mixed and hybrid. um, Unfortunately, Teresa, we're not, there isn't one, you know, you could say, oh, wow, look at that. That's the way we should go. All we have is a sense that the energy transition is not happening, not happening fast enough. And even if you look at, And we need a new new policy shift, a new policy paradigm that makes emissions reductions a public good and scales up renewable power under public control and has a just transition for those in fossil fuels at the moment. It's all very schematic, but um, that's because for 30 years, everybody's been towing the neoliberal line and and then there's only a few uh, departures from that script that said the um, people understand the potential of renewable power we've seen the Jacobson report in the US saying that the US could be a hundred percent renewable by 2040 2045 and based on um, solar hydro and wind power and these are technical studies that show what could be done or at least suggest what could be done, but we don't have the political power at this stage to implement those policies. So one day we're gonna have a state in the union that's gonna be able to do that, or a state in the world that's gonna be able to do that. And um, it's, we're waiting for that kind of breakthrough, I think, to, in order to really popularize uh, energy democracy and genuine climate protection. So there's a bit of work to, to do on it. and. Even in the EU, where emissions have fallen, it's fallen because all of their industry, or a lot of it, has been moved offshore. So now it's basically, they import products from places like China, who have got a very high emissions increase, um, but that's because they're making products for the European Union. So the Chinese complain, well, you're buying all this stuff, it's embedded with carbon, uh, You're, but we're the one who's responsible for the carbon. Mm-hmm. So what gives so that's been the d- d- the dance and eu's climate uh, emissions reductions have very little to do with climate policy it has lots to do with the recession of 2007 8 and 9 and the deindustrialization and that's also true of the united states as well so when we talk of us emissions going down with 400,000 manufacturing jobs lost during the recession of 2007 and 8 that could, it goes a long way to explaining why the U.S. is going in the right directions on emissions, somewhat in the right direction. So we need to just have a facts-based approach, I think.
2: Um, the drop in oil prices is that? Uh, is that how is that going to play out as you see in terms of use of fossil fuels and um, or use of oil? Is it? Gon-
1: yeah. Um, well, the sort of jury's out on that is like, is $50 a barrel the new normal? That's being discussed in the energy, world, energy circles. And uh, they don't think it is. They think it will go up incrementally in the next few years, but it may not get to 120, 130. It could hover around 80 or so. Now, what does it mean? On the one hand, it means upstream investment in oil exploration may go down because there's obviously a lot of supply and the demand can't reach the, meet the supply and therefore the prices go down. Um, so the investment may slow upstream, but the usage may grow. So you see flights to Europe now, $500 return, gas, what, $3 a, a gallon in New York, considerably lower than it was a year or two ago. So that means that consumption of uh, oil-based products, petroleum products could increase Um, So the economic implications, I think, are the climate implications of this um, cheap oil and cheap gas and cheap coal, incidentally, they've also gone down quite dramatically, are somewhat mixed.
2: So the stakes are high in Paris, it sounds, and on this whole issue of climate change, which you mentioned uh, the Naomi Klein and Jeremy Corbyn Event that's going to happen in Paris, and Klein argues that the whole system has to change. And it sounds like TUED is also really working on a systemic basis here of, of change. Um, so, how do you see that, and, uh, and then these, you know, kind of half steps being able to uh, do what we need to do?
1: Well, I think the advantage of what Naomi Klein has done, and she's not the only one, you could even say Pope Francis has helped, has raised the issue of political economy as a climate problem. The problem is not emissions, the problem is capitalism. Capitalist accumulation without end, growth, expansion, consumption, irregardless of what it means to uh, human well being and also ecosystems and planetary limits and i think that's a very very important place to start what also naomi klein does is she offers some very good ideas on how we get from here to there it's no good saying in my view that it's capitalism stupid we got to get rid of capitalism first and then we'll take care of the climate issue the climate issue is like every other issue it's very important to working people and poor people around the world it threatens their their food, their water, their lives. And fighting for, um, to extend economic um, influence over the political and economic influence of workers um, is crucial to solving the um, climate crisis. If workers extend their control and power over politics and over economic decision-making, um, I very much doubt that if it goes to the full um, process and full conclusion, that what's left standing will still be called capitalism. That's just my opinion. I can't see a system that in its DNA is based on growth and accumulation and consumption can possibly still be, um, you know, it c- can, can possibly deliver a truly sustainable um, political economy. I just can't see it. But I can, I've been wrong on many things in the past, we all have been, so maybe we can be surprised what history can come up with, but we do have to struggle over these key sectors. Uh, otherwise, um, we're not in with much of a chance, I think, of stopping what is really an ecocidal scenario, and, and we'll all go down with it unless we do something about it.
2: Okay, thank you. I'm glad you brought up the Pope. <laughs> I'm glad that he's taken such a leadership role and, and glad for you, Sean, and T-U-E-D likewise for raising these big issues, big picture issues. Everybody likes to talk about the weather. Uh, yeah, they do, yes. And, <laughs> and the extreme weather events that we've been seeing over and over again, and this is related, folks. Well,
1: I'm encouraged that the things are changing in the trade unions, I think. Um, they are going to be important they won't be the first to move they have not been the first to move on this issue but when they do move and um and working people understand what's at stake then we're in with a chance that's why i do the work i do in the union sphere um, i'm all for demonstrations i'm all for resisting at the frontline communities resisting the incursions of the fossil fuel companies but we've got to get to the working class on this and that means moving their organizations and educating, organizing, agitating, but offering, I think, inspiring options. This is what I think Naomi Klein has done with her book. Jeremy Corby is, Corbyn has inspired hundreds of thousands in Britain with his approach to this question. And I think we're gonna see more of it, frankly. And I hope we, I hope we do because it's uh, we're all tied up in the outcome.
0: All right. Thank you so much. The People's World Podcast is a production of peoplesworld.org. We take sides. Yours.